Downloads of the show are available at Podomatic.com or the Podomatic mobile app. Hey kids, you are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, and this show is Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo. Today is Tuesday, June 19th, 2018, and I hope you guys are hungry for some good interview and some good music, because we got a lot of it for you today, because this is what Brooklyn sounds like. Talking Heads with Stay Hungry from their More Songs About Buildings and Food album back in 1978. And in case you were wondering, hmm, why is Michelle talking about staying hungry and why did she open with a song about food? (laughs) That will all be revealed in good time, kids. But right now, ooh, listen to that fire truck because when you're doing DIY radio, this is what Brooklyn sounds like. Things. 
things But I never thought a man could be so cruel Well, I stuffed myself at dinner Couldn't eat another bite So I stuck it in the fridge And dreamt about it through the night Should I save it for my lunch Or eat it with the morning news But now I got the somebody's Ate my fried chicken blue Don't tell me how much you miss it At least it might be coming back juices flow and I christened every bite with just a dash of Tabasco I don't like to think about it cause the memory makes me drool Lord I got the somebody's ate my fried chicken blue could it have been an act of evil or just a simple act of fate And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That song was called The Fried Chicken Blues from a solo show in 1999 by our guest artist this week called The Fried Chicken Theory. An evening of sultry soul food and sweet soul music that she did in 1999. I think I said that already. Oh, well. Ah. Anyway, I bet you guys are salivating, (laughs) wondering who our guest artist is this week. Well, kids, wait no further, because right now it's time for our favorite part of the show. Whoa, whoa. Welcome to Fish Out of Hogwarts, guest artist of the week. <laughs> we are starting our countdown to a 100th episode, people. Well, we're not anywhere near it yet. We have 25 to go. But today starts the countdown, and I'm so excited for our guest artist this week. Um, she is such a multi-talented person that does multiple things. Please welcome to Fish Out of Agua, 
the singing chef, among other things, Jackie Gordon. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, she's singing already. What up, girl? Oh, uh, you know, things are things are happening, girl. It's so funny. I have this this idea that I have no experience of what the word bored feels like. I can't imagine. I think there should be a ride where people who are like super creative can go to get this experience of feeling bored just to know what it feels like. I, there's not enough time in this life and this world for all the things that I want to do. It's like projects get listed, 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 and, I'm, and I cry because I can't get them all done. I get exhausted, yeah. but that's not bored. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Jackie, I asked this of everybody when we first started our chat. How and where did we meet? Because you're not a traditional storyteller or in like that like actory author art star world no i'm not i but i the reason i'm at all in the storytelling world is because of Terry Mintz's show. Terry Mintz, yes. And that's how we met, because I saw you at Word. That's right. You saw me at, I think it was one of her birthday shows. Maybe. I mean, I've done her show too, and I, but I wasn't, I wasn't on the show. I saw you in the show, and I was like, oh, I like her. I know that you have a long and, and um, interesting trajectory to who and what you are today. <laughs> it didn't come from getting bored. <laughs> It's well, not boring. It's got a lot of details. Okay, so <laughs> let's begin at the beginning. Um, you're a native New Yorker? I am. I was born in New York Hospital. New York? Where is that? It's gone. It was on, like, the east side at, like, 60th Street. Oh, okay. So, okay, so you were born in New York Hospital. Did you, did you grow up on the Upper East Side of Manhattan? Oh, God, no. We were, we were not quite that fancy. I grew up in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Ah. Oh. Uh, pre-gentrification. Oh, pre-gentrification. Lots of fires. All I remember from my childhood on the Lower East Side was there was a lot of fires and fire engines. Wow, what street do you... I was on 4th Street between C and D that I remember, but we lived on Ridge Street, we lived on Forsyth Street. Did you street. live in the houses, or did you no, live... No, we didn't. We you lived, lived in a regular building. In a regular building Tenement on that building. street. Yeah, and I had a hilarious conversation with my mother the other day because I was across the street from where we used to live, and I took a picture. I'm like, what building? And she insisted that we live between 1st and A, and I'm like, no, Mom. We lived between C and D, because, you know, 1st and A was uptown. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yes. Yes, first yes. day was fancy. But, no. I mean, it wasn't fancy in those days, but it was fancier. C&D was like the lowest you could go. But we moved to Brooklyn in like 1968. Oh, okay. We left, the, we were part of the of the flight out of the Lower East Side oh into Brooklyn, God. into the pre-gentrification Borum Hill, which is now the uppity, there's a $16 million house that's all oh. around the corner for me. So you're the reason why white people leave their neighborhood. <laughs> Maybe. I'm like, <laughs> is it, it's not white flight, is it? Is it? <laughs> we were like... Interracial flight. All the kids I grew up in that neighborhood in the Lower East Side were all half black and. They were all mixed. They were all mixed. This is like my my mother's group. You know, they're all the like Jewish girls who went off to fall in love with musicians and and moved to and live in like the you know the hippie neighborhood and and all the kids were most of the kids had white moms and black fathers, but there were a couple of people who wanted to be different and they had white, wow. black mothers and white fathers. See, and people think that that wasn't a thing in the 60s. I mean, like, people think that, 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 that intermarriage is, like, something that, like, started around the turn of the century, mm. but no. No, no, no. No, 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 no. No, no, no. 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 <laughs> no. It was just interesting because you never really thought about it, you know, because right. this was your reality. Well, yeah, if that's your life, you think that, well, that's just that's the normal. way life is. Yeah. yeah. I didn't even know about this loving case, you know, where it was illegal. Yes, loving I mean, versus Virginia. Yeah, I didn't know about that until now, you know, I'm like, what do you mean it was illegal? Yeah, could you? I, I know. That just like boggles my friggin' mind. I know. You're just kind of like, what? 
You really brought up an interesting point that when you're um, when you're the child of an interracial marriage, you don't look at yourself as being the other no. or being strange because this is what your reality is. Exactly. At well, my mother was disowned for having children that were half black and half white. Oh, jeez. So, and that was partly because her parents were a Catholic marrying a Jew, which in back when they did it was like... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You could be disowned for marrying a Jew yeah. in, in the 50s or yeah. the 40s. Oh, for sure. Yeah, uh, but you said something about other, and that was it struck a nerve with me because when you went to school, you know, they, they, that's where you first started hearing, well, what are you? Right. What are you? What are you? And, that's and there was a box for other. Yes. Yes. And, and you know, this whole, you know, this whole thing from slavery, you know, one, one drop of black blood makes you black. And, and I'm like, wait a minute, because, you know, that negates my mom. You know, you know, I'm half black and half white. That is boom. That's it. Yeah, that's it. That's, that's it. it. You put me in whatever box you want. I know who I am. Yeah. All right. Boxes. Uh, boxes. Enough of the boxes. Put put the box inside a box inside a box and yeah. just set it on fire. Whatever. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Get rid of them. Get rid of them. So um, did you grow up in a education or performance or artistic oriented family? Food and music and, and art have always been, you know, in me. My father's a musician. My mother um, always sang. Um, she was always doodling, and uh, she stitched. Just used embroidering oh, okay. and knitting. And my father painted. He went to music and art, so oh. he, he was a painter. So, so they were artists. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of art music combination in my family. Everybody's very creative. My grand all my grandparents all cooked. Not my fa not my mother's father, but everyone were fantastic cooks. And so I always wanted to cook. I mean, I oh. always wanted to cook. Cooking was always really important to me, and um, and so that was what I did. You know, my grandmother was an amazing cook. I learned to cook really young. So that was something that came early. I always sang. So that was you know I'm like I was remember being like a sixth sixth grade come home from school. I went to school at, um, in Brooklyn, right across the street from my house. I'd come home and I'd sing all my lunch hour and then I'd go back to school. And then after school, I'd meet Cassie Camerata. We'd go to her house because she couldn't leave the house because she had to take care of her brother. And we'd sing, you know, on the, we'd be on the radio singing along. So well, the singing was always in there. Were you the kind of kid that would sing into a hairbrush or a pen? I don't, know if we sang, I don't know if we actually, we would just sing. Cassie and I would be just like, you know, rocking to the tunes. And I knew everything. Song. I knew wow. every song. <laughs> well, I always sang. I always sang to Aretha Franklin because you know that was oh, that yeah. was you know yeah. Well, that's like the law. That's just like the North Star. <laughs> exactly. You know, I would sing. To, I would sing Aretha Franklin's greatest hits. But I also, when I was younger, I loved Elton John. And you know, the funny thing is, it was also like the disco era, and I yes. hated disco. Oh and my those, god. And, those, and I, my brother, because my brother loved disco, and I'd be like, oh, disco sucks. And then we used to course, call them Hollywoods. What the people who love disco? Yeah, it was called Hollywood. <laughs> and but then, as I when I got older, I was like, "Hey, this music's good. Yeah, you can dance to it. You can dance to it." But conversely, I always loved from the moment I saw the movie Saturday Night Fever. That's one of my favorite movies ever. Just that scene mm. of John Travolta riding the R train, that graffiti torn up it was R our train town, right? with his suit, smoking a cigarette, dejected because he can't get his girl <laughs> and he wants to get out of his life. His life sucks. He he he. Like, like so many people, he wants to do something more with his life right. than the constraints of what he's in is allowing right. him to be. And he doesn't know what to do. He's like a caged friggin' animal. Yeah. You know, know? And it was a good movie. And I, a great I, album. I, I felt that. I totally felt that because that's how I felt when I was many of growing up. And my my way out was to get into the School of Visual Arts, and that changed my life. I don't know. I mean, I I went to Tech, so I so I my you went was, to Brooklyn Tech. I went to Brooklyn Tech. Uh, of so. course, you caught, of course you went to a specialized <laughs> school, darling. I don't know. I just sort of coasted through Tech. My boyfriend went to Tech. We went to high school together. That's how, really, yeah, Paul. So, are you going out with your high school sweetheart? No, I'm going out with the guy I went to high school. Oh, with. Okay. okay. Oh, you didn't go out then. No, we didn't go out. 
out then, although he oh. did take me to my first restaurant with tablecloths, Ooh. which was fancy. Because one of our friends' father owned a restaurant on 40th Street called Lavin's. And for some reason, which I still don't understand, I went with Paul and I had the most amazing dish at the time. I was like, oh my God, what is this the most amazing dish? And it was tortellini Alfredo. Do you remember when tortellini first came to New York? It was like a big deal because it was the unusual shaping of the pasta. Now it's like, who cares, tortellini? But when it came, it was like a big deal because but, it wasn't normal. Um, so <laughs> let, let's talk a little bit about high school. Um, were you, did you find a way to be creative in high school? Well, I took architecture. I took architecture. So you thought you wanted to be an architect? I didn't you really want to sit on my ass all that time. Mm. But I did, but I liked the fact that you could be creative. Mm. What was, what about architecture um, entranced you or well, attracted you? It was all, I was in a technical high school. There was not a lot that's sexy in a technical, in a technical school. You know? what, so what is the curriculum at Brooklyn Tech? It's all technical. It's like, you know, building construction and chemistry chemistry and biology and, um, you know, uh, foundry and, you know, things. It's, it's very technical, okay. airplane design, you know, oh. and now it's like computers. And so, okay. yeah, so architecture was the most creative part mm. of that. So, I mean, of the, of the curriculum there, I can't think of anything that was more creative. We didn't have interior design. And I thought I wanted to be an interior designer, so I started to go to interior design school. But wait a minute, what's that? A nightclub? Can I go out dancing instead of going to school? <laughs> Did, did you used to hang at the Palladium? No, I used to hang at the Mud Club. Oh, my God. And the Danceteria. Oh, you went to all the places I never could get into. And oh, you're so cool. I was, I was the magic cookie lady. I used to bake my way into the nightclubs. Wait a second. That's, that, was my, that, was my, that was my scam, my jam. I, 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 I went one night. I went to the fancy food show, which used to be at the, at the uh, Rockefeller Coliseum, which is where Time Warner Center is now. And in those days, they used to give you all the samples. So I went out clubbing that night, and I had my pocketbook was full of sweets. And so I turned around, and when I went to the door, I said, does anybody want any candy? And I had, like, rock candy and stuff in my bag, and they were like, they were all high because they were working doorman in a nightclub at Danceteria. And I started giving them candy. I said, oh, you like sweets. So then I started baking every night when I'd go out to the clubs. So they knew me, and when I would show up, the crowd would part, and I was like part of the in crowd. And um, yeah, I baked my way into all the nightclubs, and all the doormen knew me. So who was the person that taught you, the first person that taught you to bake? My mother's friend, Edie. She was, I used to spend Oh, my, not a family member. Um, yeah, she was kind of like, like my aunt. Mm. My mother, because she was disowned, had like a, an extended family. Yes. So she lived on the Lower East Side with us. She moved to Brooklyn one block away from us, and she loved to cook, and... We used to spend the summers with her because she was a teacher, and she'd take us up to Copake Lake, and we'd stay there for the summer. She, her kid, she was white, and her son was mixed. And she became a lesbian eventually, and her girlfriend loved food, and we had this summer where we poured over cookbooks, and we made fancy food every night. Wow, like, what, like how fancy is fancy? We made fromage romanesque. Doesn't that sound fancy? It is. What is it? I don't even know, but it was sounded well, so... Well, I know fromage is cheese. Cheese. Romanesque like a, would be like of Rome. Some, it was some it sort of, of Rome. baked cheese. Cheese of Rome. Something like that. But yeah. it was some sort of baked cheesy thing, but I always remember the name. Baked fromage, cheesy thing. Oh, that Romanesque. sounds so good. We made Ristoffel. Oh is an is an Asian feast. Really? Yeah, that it's an Indonesian feast with all these different dishes. Wow. So wow. we made really fancy food for for one summer, and I was the low man on the totem pole because I was the youngest, and I was like, I'm determined. I'm going to get to that stove. I don't want to be the the carrot peeler for the rest of my life. So you spent you spent your high school time at Brooklyn Tech figuring out what you wanted to do. Like, I'm, am I going to be an architect? And then you went to be. Then I went to the club. I went. I became a club to, kid instead. So when, so when you. Graduated Brooklyn Tech, um, and you went off went to work. Went out dancing. Yeah. And then you went out so what kind of work were you doing? I worked in restaurants. You Oh, okay. Yeah, I started working in restaurants because I was like, that's my dream. I want to work in restaurants. And so I did. 
I worked in restaurants, and then I started working. I started working back of the house. I worked in kitchens, and I worked. Oh, and, what places did you work at? Oh, I worked. At, I worked at one of the fanciest restaurants in New York City at the time, called Cafe Sayok, and that was one of my first jobs in a real fancy restaurant. I've heard of that place. That was where like Madonna would be. In that was big, big in the eighties. It was big in the eighties. It was huge. Where was and they it? Had their own, um, they had their own booth in Bloomingdale's. That's how hot that restaurant wow. was. Where they sold because it was Japanese, and so they sold yeah. their own their own plates. They had Mikasa. This was really early. This mm. was all new. The cutlery, the pla the plates were black. They were super slick looking. They had said Cafe Sayok. They had Cafe Sayok and earrings. It was super Wow. Hot. And this was around the time when sushi was just coming it was into so the, the um, like you said, Twitalini came out in yeah. the 70s. Sushi came out in the exactly. 80s. And it changed everything. Exactly. And Cafe Sayokin was also part of a wave of restaurants like Odeon. Yeah, and America. And, and America. Big, big restaurants. Mm -hmm. And Lucky Strike. Yeah. And um, oh, what's the other one? It was I the beginning of, of that wave. Yeah. Oh, Indochine. Yeah, so it was a, one of those big restaurants. It was super hot. I mean, like the floor, you know, the, the, it was filled with celebrities. I was like the low man because I, I didn't have any experience. So I was in the garmanger in the kitchen, and we had a Japanese chef. What's your garmanger? Garmanger does all the cold salads, the, um, the cold appetizers, and the desserts. Oh, okay. And, um, and it was interesting be, being a woman, being a woman in the kitchen, obviously, you know, we, we all know that how that does not work out a lot. But I was also a woman of color. Mm. And the people that I was over in hierarchy were the dishwashers who were black. They were Haitian, and they hated me. They would mm. never take an order from a woman. They wow. Were, and well, that's, that's a cultural thing. Yeah, totally. And the, and the chef would be like, you know, you're in charge. You know, you have to tell them, and they have to learn to respect you. I'm like, they don't. So what was the chef? Oh, the chef F was F Japanese. The chef, okay. Well, so it was very diverse, but it was diverse like, like a caste system. You know oh what my I mean? Because it was all mostly white guys on the line. The people that were in charge of the kitchen were Japanese, and they didn't take, they were no fooling around. The place was spotlessly cleaned every night. So I had really good um, training on how to run a restaurant. And so then next to the restaurant I went to work at was Serendipity. Mm, that's a famous place on yeah. the Upper East Side yeah. that still exists. It still exists. Frozen yeah. hot chocolate. Frozen hot chocolates. And I worked for, um, for those guys, and they were amazing. They were amazing. And is it always the hierarchy of a kitchen? that the dishwashers are one, the ethnicity that's trying to come up, that's the one that's like the, the, the recent strivers, Maybe. and the people that are the cooks are the ones that have, like, not, uh, not, not the cooks, but like, yeah, like the line cooks or whatever are like the ones that have been here for a little bit longer. I don't know. See, that kitchen's interesting now that I think about it because there wasn't a lot of Latinos in, because now there's lots of Latinos in Yes, in the, in but the recent in immigrants like from Mexico and Central right, and, and South and, America. Right, and I, I'm surprised that there were no Puerto Rican and Dominicans in that kitchen. No, there were none. Because it's and, it, and interestingly enough, it's since I worked in the restaurant business, each restaurant would have a different culture. Huh. So that restaurant, it was mostly white guys working, but and then the Haitian guys doing the dishwashing and you know being the pot scrubbers and stuff. But then, but there wasn't like a Latino contingent that was working their way up. I don't know whether there were Latino busboys. There might have been. So I also worked at River Cafe years later, and there they were all they were Latino. Because they called my, they cursed out one of my friends in, in Spanish. So Maricon, that's Spanish. <laughs> yeah, that's Spanish. Yes, that's Spanish. <laughs> yeah, yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when the River Cafe opened, that was also a big deal. It was a big because deal. Because of, A, the location. Yes. Because, you know, it was in Brooklyn. Yes. And then, and you looked at Manhattan. Yes, you could admire the beautiful jewel of Manhattan and yeah. the gorgeous yeah. skyline. Yeah, I worked there. That was probably my last job in the restaurant business in America because I moved to Australia after that. Oh, you moved? Oh, how old were you? So, so you worked for restaurants for like, about how many years after you graduated high school then? 
I don't know. Uh, maybe uh, maybe ten years. Ten years. Ten years. Sure. I worked. I did different things. I worked in restaurants. I worked in catering. I, I was always in the food orbit. In the orbit okay. of food. Okay. But I made good money, you know. But I study voice, so I used the ah. money. So when I was working in the, uh-huh. in, the in the in the uh, in the in the restaurant business, I worked. I went from the back of the house to the front of the house because that's where the money was, and I used all that money to study performance. I had this dream to be a singer, but I didn't want anybody to hear right. me sing. Right, because you was, you would sing with your girlfriend after school. Well, that was after school, school, but right. then when I became when I got older and was like, I think I want to be a singer. What was it was what, a secret. What, what made you decide to do that? I always sang. I'd always okay. sang, right? So I'd always sung, but I was terrified for anybody to hear me sing. Oh. So I thought, let me take singing lessons. And I remember going to my first singing lesson at the Ansonia Hotel, you know, in the studios that were in the Ansonia Hotel. And they were like, what do you want to do? And I said, I think I want to be a singer. So but you, I whispered it. So you were a secret singer. I was a total secret singer. Like I had this dream to be like on stage, but I, you know, this was the little girl who was also really shy. I was like the ham trapped in the shy kid's body. You were shy? I was, as a little kid, I was shy. And we didn't even talk about that when you were a kid at all. I just assumed that you were as no. outgoing and everything as you are right now. Head in my mother's skirt, hiding, didn't, don't talk to me, don't say hello to me. Wow. I was, don't put me in school on the first day of school, terrified, I cried in the hallway all day. You know, I was like terror. I was terrified of what I didn't know. Did singing get you out of yourself and make you feel more confident? Well, you know, somewhere along the line, it switched. You know, so I started out that way. I I was a loud mouth by then. By the time I started taking singing lessons, I was a loud mouth about everything else, not necessarily singing. When I start, and so I started taking singing lessons. I wouldn't sing here. I wouldn't. I didn't want to, you know, audition or do anything here. I didn't want to be rejected. Well, did you want to be on Broadway? What no. did you have any? Um, I, I can't dance. Did you have? Don't any? ask me. <laughs> <laughs> I can house party dance. Yeah, yeah, I can't yeah. like kick step, walk, shuffle, yeah, shuffle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no jazz hands. No jazz hands. No jazz hands. No step, step, step. It's oh my god, hilarious. That's so funny. It's hilarious. So, um, but what did? did what was your dreamed like to do with singing did you picture yourself like singing at like the Being Carlisle in a band. or something no no I, I never I don't know I never that's funny I've never thought about how I pictured myself as a singer I know what I what happened you know I I came I was too terrified to sing here so I, I moved, moved to, to Australia I moved to Australia and as soon as I got off the plane in Australia there were opportunities for me to sing and I was and I was with my friend Barb so what made you move to Australia let's backtrack just a tiny bit so I uh, hated working at the River Cafe. I hated, um, you know, it was like... I, and this is in the 90s? Uh, this is in the early 90s, yeah. And okay. I was, and I was kind of like, I got to get out of here. My best friend um, was sick with AIDS. And uh, I had planned to leave. I planned to go to, like, Europe, and then he got sick. So I didn't leave. And then I, and then he got better. You know how that happened in those days. They got sick, they got better. And I said, well, my friend Barbie's in Australia, and I want to get out of here, and I want to go as far as I can go. So I'm going to go with Barb. I'm going to go meet her in Australia. Her dream was to travel around Australia. And I'll meet her on her travel. And, and I'll come back. You know, he was fine when I left. So I went and flew into Australia like a bitch on wheels and um, terrorized them a little bit. And then um, over time, I kind of calmed down. But what happened there was I was there was an opportunity for me to sing in a tea plantation with an old Aussie digger playing. In, the, Australia. in what, Australia. What city was this? I, was, I flew into, the North, into Queensland. Oh, okay. Is, so I was in the, in the tropics. It was beautiful. And um, he's like play, playing Waltz and Matilda on the, on the guitar. And anybody else sing? And I'm like, oh, I can sing. And so I, I would sing. I sang a song. And he's like, okay, I sang one song. Then I would, then I would be, go travel a little further, and there, maybe I'd be in a boat traveling in, in the tropical waters, and there'd be someone with a guitar. And we'd sing, have a sing-along, and then I'd sing. 
or I'd be at a concert and someone would say, who knows eight bars of um, Aquarius to win tickets to a show? And I'm like, I can sing eight bars of Aquarius. And so I get up in front of this whole room full of people, you know, like a, a lawn full of people and I sing, you know, this is a dawning whatever of Aquarius. And so it kind of caught on. And as I traveled down the coast of Australia, my courage, my confidence grew. And I decided I would stay in Australia, and I would sing. I came back. So you went there on a trip as a tourist, and you ended up living there? Yeah, I, I came home. Chip died. And then after he died, I, I went back to Australia. And So uh, you got, like, a work visa and stuff? No, I just went. I just went on a So you were visa. illegal. I was illegal. Oh, my God. I was illegal. You were, you were illegal. Okay, Australia. It's okay. It's okay. She, she's I'm back a citizen. Now. I'm a citizen. No, now I'm a citizen. You're a citizen of oh, Australia? Oh, no, I lived in Australia for 10 years. Wow. Oh, honey, girl, I, didn't, I wasn't going to come back here without knowing I could go back there. Australia is an amazing place. And, they, and it kind of gave me this confidence because being a woman of color in Australia or a person of color in Australia is a completely opposite experience of being one in America. Explain. So, Explica. I lived in, so I, I moved to Melbourne, which is down in the bottom, and it's incredibly diverse. I'm, it was interesting because before I went to Australia, people were like, oh, you know, you got to watch out. The Aussies are really racist, racist, racist. Was, That's the stereotype. It's a stereotype. And I never had that experience, but I did have, you know, a couple of experiences. Like somebody called me a black bitch once, or a woman said, oh, you people have such nice teeth to me, an old woman, like a, like a thousand-year-old woman at a bus stop. And I was like, wow. Maybe she had no teeth. You probably like you your people, teeth. You people have such nice teeth. And, um, and I, you know, so there was, was nothing. But I'm telling you, people of color, especially black Americans, they roll out the red carpet for you in Australia. They love us. So when, and when you see other people of color that you know are American in the street, there's this like little secret smile that you have. Oh, the secret society. The secret, yeah, and because it's kind of like you always acknowledge them because you know they're they know you, and you know that you got it good in Australia. It's a great place to live, especially for men. Huh? Because the women love black men in Australia. They love black American men in Australia. They hear that, boys? Go out there and find yourself a lovely. How woman. do you like redheaded Puerto Ricans? They love. They would love you. They they love Americans. They love our, and it's, and it's a totally different experience. So for me, when I got there, they were like, you want to be in a band? Here's a band. You want to do this? You want to meet like the top performers in the country? There they are. Everything was really easy for me there. Wow. And how did you get to become a citizen? Did you marry an Australian? <laughs> That's a long story. Uh, I married an Australian. He turned me into um, the Department of Immigration. He turned you in? He married you and turned you well, in? Well, when we broke up, we, I, I might have slapped him in the face. Okay, I might have hit him. So, well, he probably deserved it. <laughs> I'm going to say he definitely deserved it. He deserved it. it. But, um, but then, um, because Australia recognizes de facto relationships, you don't have to be married. I was in a relationship with someone else when he turned me in. And so I reapplied with Pierre Olivier, my boyfriend, and, um, and I became a citizen. I became a resident. And then you have to be a resident for a certain amount of time. And then just as I was leaving Australia to come back to America, I, um, they said, do you want to be a citizen? on September 11th. That was the date they picked for me. September 11, 2001? Yeah, and they said, do you want to become a citizen? And I was like, you know, I would become a citizen on this day, but I'm on my way back to America five days before September 11th, and I feel like I need to go to America, and then I'll become a citizen when I come back. And that's exactly what happened. And I arrived five days before September 11th. And then I never really moved back to Australia. I did. I went back for a little while. I became a citizen, and then I moved back to America because September 11th. 
Life changed. Life changed. Yeah, for and as people said, you can't you can't sit with your ass between two chairs. That's what that's an Australian expression. Oh. So you have to choose a chair. So how did you support yourself when you were in Australia? I cooked and I you sang cooked. and I had a, I was in bands and I and I was a performer and I invented being a singing chef in Australia. Oh. Australia gave me wings. Australia gave me the wings that said you can do whatever you want here and get paid. So you and you brought that back here with you, and after, not get, after and to not get paid. <laughs> yeah. so t- tell us a little bit about the singing chef. So I did a show in Australia. I met. I had the most amazing friends and people in Australia. And one of the women I w- was friends with was a fantastic actress who was in a series, kind of like the equi- Australian um, equivalent of PBS, which was I forget what the channel's called, but they had the show. And she was my a friend of a friend, and we became friends. And we decided to create a show called Black Pearls and Strange Fruit, the history of black American women singers and their struggle for racial dignity. And we produced this show in the Melbourne Fringe Festival in 1998, and it was the hit. It won Best Show at the Fringe Festival. Wow. It won the ability to be put into the International Festival of the Arts, along with the greatest acts in the world, who all come to Melbourne once a year. Yo-Yo Ma, Dance Theater of Harlem, the Chinese Opera. I mean, everybody comes to Melbourne for the International Festival of the Arts. And there's little old me, who's only, never really had a show, just had one hit show, and I'm in the... I'm in the game with the big guys. All and you didn't even set out to become a performer, and then there you were. Well, I was. I mean, yes, you want to be a I mean, I wanted to do, I've always wanted to do something that mattered. You know, I didn't want to just be, you know, a pop singer. I always wanted to do something that would, so I did a docu-singery. That was a story of, you, we all know these famous black American women singers, but did you know that, you know, that uh, Ella couldn't, well, couldn't, had to cook on the side of the road because they couldn't eat in the, rest, in the places they performed? Did you know that, you know, Bessie Smith had to, you know, f- outrun the Ku Klux Klan who was trying to burn down the tent she's performing in? Did you know about Lena Horne and the blackface? They wanted made her put on blackface because she wasn't black enough or they wanted her to. You know, there's all these stories that you didn't know behind be, Billie Holiday being the, the first one, Strange Fruit being the song, you know, Tell us about that strong, you know, people would say, tell us about that, so- that, uh, that song with the black people playing in the trees. And they were like, it was a song about lynching. And people, my theory was that people listen to music, but they don't actually listen to the words. Mm. So I wrote an entire show about that, based on that song, and told seven, uh, the stories of seven singers and sung, sang their songs and talked about the civil rights movement and, um, and uh, how the evolution of black American mu- music from field songs to gospel to the present day, to these singers and and the civil and the civil rights movement. That's incredible. And that one, and that was hugely popular. But I was coming back here to shop it when I was here for September 11th, and the world changed. I had this amazing show that I never did again. Um, oh, but what was the chef part of it? So that was Black Pearls and Strange Fruit. Oh, okay. So in the same year that I, the year that I won that, so. October was when the Fringe Festival was. A year from now, you're going to be in the, in the International Festival of the Arts. And I thought, oh, what am I going to do between October and October? I need to do another show. So I created the show The Fried Chicken Theory, according to Jackie Gordon. The Fried Chicken Theory. I love it. <laughs> and that was, and I said, I want to do, I've always wanted to do a dinner show. I want to do a dinner show where the dinner is as good as the show. I want to be in charge of the food and the entertainment. And so I, you know, scrapped up and... I got on the phone and I called Tabasco in Australia and I said, I want to do the show. I had no idea what I was doing. I was like, I want to do the show where I talk about where, I, where I'm going to cook fried chicken and you know what goes great with fried chicken? Tabasco sauce. And would you give me money? And they were like, how much money do you want? And I was like, uh, $3,000. And they were like, is that for one show in, Aust- in Sydney and one in Melbourne? And I was like, 
no, it's for each one, for Sydney and Melbourne. I need $3,000. And they were like, okay. And That's they were how, like, okay? They were like, okay. And I was so unprepared for it. Do you hear this, people? If you have a mind of a sponsor, just call them. Just you never call, know what You can, never know what's going to Because you know what? If you don't ask, the yeah. answer is always no. You'll get no. nothing. You'll get nothing. So, so, I, so I put on a show. And uh, I had a, a duo that opened for me. I had a, it was like an, uh, a dinner show with a dinner. I, and I hired chefs. And we put together this three-course dinner. And so it was kind of cool. So they were like a jazz band. And then I would host the dinner. And people would feed, eat everything. And then... As soon as I served the dessert or while the dessert was coming out, I would come on and do um, R&B from the 50s and 60s, like the, all the tunes that you wanted to sing that don't, no one sings anymore. A lot of Etta James, you know, I'd Rather Go Blind, and these Percy Sledge and Wilson Pickett and Brenda Washington, all these great old tunes that you don't get to sing. They're all like wow. ripper soul music. I was like, this is Nina Simone, all kinds of great tunes, you know. Uh, stop the wedding. Wait, wait, stop the wedding. <laughs> so what are some of the venues that you did these shows here in, in uh, New York when you came I'd back? I've never done the fried chicken theory here. No? No, because it was too big a show. Okay. I, I, didn't have the, I didn't have the stones for it. I did come back when I finally got it together and the thing settled down from September 11th. I produced my first show in New York. Say cheese. A tongue titillating tasting of artisan cheeses, wines, and the songs they inspire. And each guest would get a, plate, a platter of cheeses and four wines and we would taste them through and compare their answers of what they like best with a master cheese make cheese guy who I previously tasted the cheeses and wines with and it was a really good show. What a premise. How long did it run? That ran for three weeks at the Lori Beachman Theater. Ah, oh, I like that theater. Yeah, it's a great theater. Did you get reviewed? Did you get any notice with it? I got tons and tons of press. Does it sell seats in New York City? No. <laughs> Hi. You know? Yeah, it's a quintessential quandary. It's crazy. I mean, I, I had come from Australia where any time I was on, did any kind of press, the, the phone rang, the ticket sold, I was sold out. Every show I did in Australia was sold out. So it was kind of devastating to come back here and lose money on a show. So what did you do next? After that, I was just like, that's it. I'm never doing another show again. Never. <laughs> And no, I couldn't. I, I couldn't do it. It was so. It was devastating for me to have to pay for the house. It was de devastating for me to have to lose all that money. I was just like, ah. So I um, went into the chocolate business. Ah, oh, so you took another risk. <laughs> a friend of mine was getting married, and he said, "You know what I'd really like at my wedding? A chocolate fountain." And I said, "There's no such thing as a chocolate fountain." And then I went to the fancy food show, and what was in the middle of the show was a chocolate fountain, the first one I'd ever seen. They're so ubiquitous at weddings now. now. When, now. when was this? This was in the early 2000s. I, it was probably like 2004, 2005. That's probably, I think that's when I did it. So you that. started selling chocolate fountains? No, I started, um, I bought one and I started renting it. And I made a lot of money. Wow. I made a lot of money at, at running it from my house. I ran the chocolate business from my house. And then I decided what I really needed to do was to open a chocolate fountain cafe in the city <laughs> because I didn't want to run the business out of my house. So I thought, why don't I bankrupt myself, morally, emotionally, physically exhaust myself by opening a cafe in New York City where people could dip in the chocolate fountain every day. And that was a really good idea until I opened it. Oh my God. The day I opened it, I went, oh my God, this is a really bad idea. It was open for about five years and it was on the corner of Broome, it was on Broome between Mott and Elizabeth in the city. In well, Nomita. five years isn't 
it, that's a it run. struggled. It struggled. The chocolate, the event business, which made a lot of money, carried the retail business, which sucked all the money and life out of the business. So it was kind of like I was breaking even or barely breaking even the whole time and working really hard. Whereas before I was kind of sitting here in my pajamas, renting out chocolate fountains and making money for doing nothing. Luckily, the guy next door to me had a really successful banh mi shop, a Saigon sandwich shop. And he said, you want me to take over your lease? And I was like, out of here. I don't, wow, that was fortunate for you. That was but really you know, I, I think people don't realize until they are an entrepreneur with their own small business it's, that just it's incredible that anybody has a store at all. Exactly. It's just you know, you have to between the rent and the staffing and the and the regulations and all the other and all the things that can go wrong every day. I take my hats off to anybody that has a brick and mortar store in this town or any kind of store in this town. So, so you went from being the toast of the town in, in Australia to coming back and, <laughs> and, and doing wine and cheese shows, doing chocolate fountains. What came next? Seems like that everything that you've done has been ingredients for a recipe for you to do something else. Everything. Well, it's funny. You know, everything that you ever do is, is the, is builds up to all the things that you do. And so you find things. I mean, I'm really good at, at finding things creating new things to do. I don't know why I, I seem to be like a, like a, a rolling stone myself, but like I, I'm always, I pick up things and then I want to do something else. So I come up with ideas of stuff that I want to ha see happen and I make them happen. So, um, I know that you now are making a living, I guess a day job for one of us, a better word as a public speaker. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into that? So I joined Toastmasters probably like 2009 2010 how did you find out about them or did someone recommend you I was training to be a coach and two of the women that were in my coaching program were members of this particular club SEC Rough Riders which meets at the Bar Association and what I went there for not so much to learn how to be a good public speaker but how to be a powerful public speaker so lots of people get up and speak in this world in this country tell stories give speeches presentations and they are they don't know how to talk and they don't know how to um, influence an audience or inspire an audience. And so my thing has always been, don't get up on a stage unless you have something to say that's going to be valuable. So my thing has always been to find value, found value. And the thing I learned at Toastmasters that I didn't have, because I'd already done one woman shows where I talked for an hour and 15 minutes straight mixed in with songs, was how to be powerful in a short amount of time. All the speeches are timed for five to seven minutes, and that was hard for me. How to be succinct, how to use, you know, use each word sparingly, how to get your point across in a really short amount of time. So it's kind of like a TED Talk. They're very much like TED Talks. So every speech I did was kind of, I wanted them to be valuable, and I, and I had to learn how to write less and not fall in love with my own words and kill your darlings which is the which is the bane of every right. writer's existence right? <laughs> my baby but what exactly is toastmasters for people that don't know toastmasters is an international organization that trains people on how to be more effective public speakers can anybody join anybody can join it's probably the most diverse organization in the world it's international it happens everywhere and there are clubs all over the place, uh, and they are, they they set them up by district and division, and you know there's different hierarchies, and um, yeah, it's it's a really powerful organization that trains public speakers, and you learn how to give up your filler words and how to um, there was one <laughs> filler word how to uh, how to give great eye contact. Some people think oh it's not as real as storytelling. It's a different speeching speaking 
giving speeches and telling stories are two different things in well, my book. But I think that they're all kind of a form of storytelling. They are, but there's a, you know, with a, with a storytelling, it's all about um, taking the audience on a kind of emotional ride, mm. you know, so it's an emotional ride, whether you're making them laugh or you're making them gasp or you're making them cry. With speeches, there needs to be a pearl in there that they can walk away with that will, that has the potential to change your life. Huh. That's how I see it. That's an interesting way to put it. I mean, but one could make the same case for storytelling also, because there's yeah. often a nugget in there, there could that, that, that change, but, but... But it could be just fun. You know, right, it could be but it could be just fun. fun. But sometimes with storytelling, sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. Yeah, but you could have taken them on a serious ride, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that speaking is better than right. storytelling. I'm just saying that they're different. With speeches, there better be something in there of value for the audience that they can take away. One thing, I always tell when I'm coaching speakers, I say, give me the one thing, and then build the speech around it, and make sure you deliver that one thing. And I would say the same thing about telling a story. Right. <laughs> So how did how was the natural segue from you to from going to public speaking into storytelling? Well, my friend Terry Mintz has a show called Word that started out as a show called Tale. And um, and I was like, oh, you know, I have this story about how I made Molotov cocktails out of elderflower cordial. So I got up and told the story. And then I realized that I loved telling stories about food because food is such a center of, of my life. So I started telling food stories at Terry's show, and I thought, oh, you know what? It would be great if I could create a food storytelling show. We're going to get to that in a minute, mm -hmm. but a little pescal fish, because like people say a little birdie told me something, mm -hmm. but this is the fish out of Baba <laughs> show, so it's a little pescal fish told me that you have a story you're going to share with us. So right now, Jackie Gordon with uh, a story. Yes, the story's called Pimp My Ride, making lemonade out of a lemon. You did what? I signed you up for a bike tour, said Paul, my boyfriend, as the countdown to the end of our relationship began in my head. Each May, over 30,000 bikers gather in downtown Manhattan for the Five Borough Bike Tour, a 40-mile trip that goes through the city to the Bronx, down to Queens, then into Brooklyn, and ends in Staten Island. If you love biking and New York City, it's a grand day. If you hate being signed up for physical labor that's long and undoubtedly uncomfortable under the pretense of being an enjoyable adventure without being asked first, you're probably not going to be that keen to go. Unsign me up, I said. He said, no, it'll be fun. You, me, and Francis, his 10-year-old daughter, we'll have a ball. Don't get me wrong. I hate biking. I can ride a bike, but I prefer a taxi. I had a flashback to another bike ride I said yes to, because I'm stupid, when I lived in Australia. My flatmates, Sandra and Gail, were strong, sporting gals who did things like bike through Europe, and I wanted to fit in. They borrowed a bike for me that I had no business being on. It was too small for this long-legged gal, and riding it was pure torture. Luckily, they ditched me because I was so slow. When I couldn't stand it for another minute, I got off that bike, set it on fire, and walked home. I didn't, only because it wasn't my bike. I did vow, never again. This five-borough bike tour was a total lemon. I had a choice. I could be an absolute bitch about it, totally in my wheelhouse, or I could make lemonade. I made the aid. 
Paul had paid for the tickets and he really wanted to go, so I said, okay. I bought a new bike and I trained hard every day to get ready and I got myself a cute little red biking outfit and every word in this last sentence is an absolute lie. I didn't do that. I said, I'd go because I knew I'd get some, remember when I did that thing that you wanted to do but I didn't want to do it and I did it anyway? Coins that I could cash in at a later date. Better than bitcoins. I said, I'll only go on the bike ride if you dink me. Dinking is an adorable Australian word meaning to give someone a ride on your bike either behind the rider or on the handlebars. In my New York City childhood, the expression was ride me, which not only lacks charm, but as an adult sounds downright dirty. I wasn't planning on doing the 40 mile bike ride, clinging to Paul from behind or balancing on his handlebars. What I meant was get a pedicab. And that's exactly what we did. On the day of the ride, Paul Francis and I went to Revolution Rickshaws on 10th Avenue and 38th Street and rented a pedicab for 75 bucks. Paul fastened Francis's bike to the pedicab, we got in it, and he rode us down to the financial district for the start of the bike tour. When the other bikers saw us, they were predominantly surprised and amused. There may have been a little snickering, but I felt no shame. I was making lemonade. I gave them a you-do-you look and a big smile. I literally made lemonade. After all, what was I going to do in a pedicab all day? I had to prepare a sumptuous feast, a picnic. I filled a cooler with finger sandwiches and cheeses and charcuterie and fruit and crudite and salad and deviled eggs and brownies and shortbread cookies. I made a thermos of tea and fresh squeezed lemonade. I whipped up a sign for my new blog, The Diva That Ate New York, which I hung on the back of the pedicab for a bit of free advertising. Paul was absolutely right. That bike tour was fun. What a thrill to be cruising down the FDR Drive in the fresh air, wrapped in a blanket, having tea and cookies with no cars. As you can imagine, I got a lot of attention from riding in the only pedicab on the bike tour. People were waving and yelling out the name of my blog. I was waving back. My wave game was strong. I worked the Royal Queen Elizabeth wave, the babies and small children wave, the finger sandwich nibbling while waving wave, the I'm in a pedicab bitches and you're not standing wave. There was also the haters gonna hate single finger wave for a few choice New Yorkers. Frances rode her bike for part of the tour, then wised up and joined me in the pedicab. Paul dinked us like a champ. We got on a couple of hills, but he wouldn't even let us push. Yes, we were the last bike on the tour. Pedicabs are not speed machines. The man in the van had to trail us, that had to trail the last bike on the tour. He was not amused. When we finally got to my own Brooklyn neighborhood, the bikes were meant to go on the Brooklyn Queens Expressway with the cars and head to the Verrazano Bridge. I bailed. Seven miles of car fumes and winding up on Staten Island? No way. Once again, I made it work for me. I went home and had a much needed nap. So full and my waiting arms needed a good rest. The next time you're faced with a total lemon, make lemonade. You never know. You could wind up sipping it in a pedicab on the FDR Drive. <laughs>
God. I love that story. Hilarious. So, uh, yeah, are you going to be telling that anywhere soon? I am. I may, but I'm. I do have a new show coming up. So all this time I've been telling food stories at Terry Mintz's show Word. I thought, oh, you know what I want to do? I want to create a food storytelling show because there's so many food stories. Every person on the face of the earth has a food story. So I created a show called Mouthful, a food storytelling show with snacks. Sometimes that exists live in New York City and is also live streamed on Facebook Live and Instagram Live. And we have our next show coming up on June 20th and it will be live from the Fisher and Paykel Experience Center. It's a pride show, so it's all LGBTQ storytellers. Oh, who's going to be on? We have Audrey Smaltz, we have um, Sydney Washington, we have Shay Neary, we have Thomas McKean, a whole bunch, there's six storytellers. And after the show and before the show, there's food. So there's nibbles and there was included wine and, and beer and soft drinks. And then we make food that is from the stories. Michael Munoz is in the show and he talks about um, pumpkin wontons. He talks about his big gay Thanksgivings and how he, Martha Stewart. Oh my God, original, big gay Thanksgiving, I love it. <laughs> original gangster and how he tried to emulate Martha Stewart. And he made pumpkin pie wontons. So we're doing pumpkin pie wontons and for his for his food in the show. And are you cooking all the food? We cooked, Laura, my partner is Laura Wiley, and um, together we devise the menu, and with our team, we make the food. So we have actually a chef who's working on the show as well. I don't like to entertain people when they're not eating. You know, I don't want anybody, I don't want to be talking about food when people aren't getting food. <laughs> so my roots are about feeding people, and so I like entertainment, and I like being fed, so I create entertainment where people get to eat. And the cool thing we do with the food in our show is we write with it. What's not to like? So, so where is the show happening again? It's called Mouthful. And it's happening Wednesday, June 20th. It's going to be at the Fisher and Paykel Experience Center, which is on 58th Street between Lexington and 3rd in the Architects and Decorators Building. It is a stunning showroom with incredible appliances. You will want to move in there. And um, yeah, it starts at 6.15 and it goes for about an hour. And then we have about an hour of feasting afterwards. That sounds fantastic. So where can people find out more about this show and you? <laughs> Facebook page is Mouthful Storytelling and if you go on there you'll get the link to not only the, the tickets for the show but you can actually watch the show online. You don't oh. have to be there but you don't get the food and the drinks unless you're there. And are you on Twitter and IG? We are on Twitter and IG as well. Mouthful Storytelling. Mouthful. So it's the same. Mouthful yeah. Storytelling. And if people want to find out more about you, specifically Jackie Gordon? You can go to JackieGordon.com and you can watch my, my sizzle reel and see recipes of food that I've made and read stories that I've written and blog posts and all that kind of stuff that happens on the internet. If you want to find me on Instagram, I'm the Diva That Ate New York. The Diva That Ate New York is the name of my blog. That's my Twitter handle. It's also my um, Instagram handle. And yeah, JackieGordon.com is my website. The Diva That Ate New York. Yeah. Of course you are. Of course I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jackie, I asked this question for everybody at the end of our chat together. If you would have some word of encouragement and inspiration for the child that wants to do something more with their life than their circumstances would seem to allow them to do. Mm. And they don't know how they can get it out. Right. What would you tell this child? I would tell them to either model somebody that they, that they admire or find a mentor. Just, you know, throw themselves on the mercy of a mentor and pick a bunch of them and throw yourselves at the mercy of all of them and say, I want to be like you. Can I follow you? Can I help you? Can I, can I find some way to be valuable to you? And I think that most people who are creative would love to have someone 
that they could inspire. So you're advocating just whoever that you admire, just write to them, write email to them. them, Twitter, tweet yeah, them, tweet and, them. Say, and, and like try to make a relationship. Create relationships. You know, the internet is great for finding for for uh, finding people you can model. Even like say you see someone that's on YouTube that you love what they do. I'm not saying copy them. I'm saying model yourself. There's things about people that you can take without actually making a carbon copy of them. You always put your own spin on and it. And you're absolutely right, Jackie, because if you don't ask... You don't get nothing. The answer is always no. Exactly. Thank you for being on Fish I'm so glad. I'm so happy. Good luck with the show on the 20th. I'm going to be there. Yeah. All right. We always end with a hug yeah, on here. Yeah. Woohoo! Too much salt, you get complaints. Too much pepper, oh, the angst. Too much chili in this pain as folks try to ease the flames. Doing a dance on their tongues. But there's a phrase I've never heard, not a whisper, not a word. When a diner samples a dish, you will never hear them cuss, throw their fork down in disgust, saying, who put all this bacon in this? A crumble, a strip, a slab of some bits. Can't you feel your taste buds get wetter? A sprinkle will lift the most lifeless dish, cause bacon makes everything better. It adds pluck to your duck. It puts hustle in your muscles, makes a dream of baked beans, and every little dish in between. Well, who hasn't had a recipe fail when you follow it to the letter? For a quick fix, add some swine to the mix, cause bacon makes everything better. It adds shiver to calf's liver, and more licking to your chicken, just the grease makes a feast, turning cornbread into a masterpiece. This cozy food just titillates when you wrap it around like a sweater. A scallop, a date, sweet plantain tastes great cause bacon makes everything better. Put shazam in your clams, it gives boom, boom, boom to your mushrooms. Puts a quake in your steak. And when you eat it, you can feel the earth shake. Your fiance says me to a bacon bouquet. Well, take my advice and forget her. This magic meat makes your heart skip a beat. This magic meat makes you jump to your feet. This magic meat makes you dance in the street. Cause bacon makes everything. Bacon makes everything. Bacon makes everything better. And we're back with Fish Out of Aqua on Radio Free Brooklyn. And the magic meat that makes everything better. <laughs> well, that was Jackie Gordon's song, uh, Bacon Makes Everything Better, which is from t- 2014. And um, I think she's putting it on the CD or using it in the show. I'm not sure. Sorry. I guess I should have asked. But the song that opened Jackie's interview was also one of hers. It was called The Fried Chicken Blues from The Fried Chicken Theory, according to Jackie Gordon. An evening of sultry soul food and sweet soul music, which was one of her award-winning shows in Australia, and I believe this one was from 1999. Well, kids, that's our show. You've been listening to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. If you like what you've heard today or any other day, sponsor us. Just go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org and forward slash donate. Support living artists and sign up for our newsletter so you can keep up with our events. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next. We're going to close with a few seconds of another song that Jackie picked by Aretha Franklin called The House That Jack Built, a single from 1968. See you next week. Woohoo! This was the plan that it worked by hand.
Jesus.